Zechariah, the prophet Zechariah chapter 8. We're going to pick up at verse 9. We read from Zechariah a little bit last week. We're doing it again today. I want you to notice as I read, what God is saying here is how he judged his people. The, the actual approach he used to bring judgment upon his household, his people, and then what he promises when we get down to verse um, 12. So, Zechariah chapter 8, verses 9 through 13, it's page 796 in that blue Bible. Thus says Yahweh of hosts, remember all caps, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, is a translator's code to let you know that God's personal name is in the Hebrew. And so you'll hear Wes and I often use God's name at those moments. Thus says Yahweh of hosts, let your hands be strong. You who in these days have been hearing these words from the mouth of the prophets who were present on the day that the foundation of the house of the Yahweh of hosts was laid, that the temple might be built. For before those days, there was no wage for man or any wage for beast. Neither was there any safety from the foe for him who went out or came in. For I set every man against his neighbor. But now I will not deal with the remnant of this people as in the former days, declares Yahweh of hosts. For there shall be a sowing of peace. The vine shall give its fruit, and the ground shall give its produce, and the heavens shall give their dew, and all. And I will cause the remnant of this people to possess all these things. And as you have been a byword of cursing among the nations, O house of Judah and house of Israel, so will I save you, and you shall be a blessing. Fear not, but let your hands be strong. And now we go to 1 Peter chapter 4, picking up at verse 12. It's page 1016 in that blue Bible. So we continue our series through 1 Peter and into 2 Peter, memories, manners, and mandates for God's minority people. So we're just picking up right where we left off, chapter 4, verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet, if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the house of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. All that I've read to you from the Old and New Testament is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Oh Lord Jesus, fiery trials come and fiery trials may go. May we come to no longer be surprised but to entrust ourselves to our faithful creator while doing good. Amen. You may be seated. 
And so just remember tonight we'll be meeting this evening and I'll be looking at Nehemiah 6 and 7 and that series, uh, Rebuilding After a Hot Mess. I really, really would love for you to see you to come. I think you will find it hugely beneficial. Putting it together was wonderful. It was very edifying to me. So let me give you a little PCA history here, just not to bore you or anything, but a little PCA, Presbyterian Church in America history. Many, many years ago, several pastors and elders in what was then, what was then called the PCUS, the Presbyterian Church United States, began a new denomination. So several of those pastors and elders came out and began a new denomination, and they originally called that denomination the National Presbyterian Church. That was our name for a whole year or something like that. They then quickly changed the name to the Presbyterian Church in America. And so this new body of churches sent out a letter on the 7th of December, 1973. It was titled, quote, A Message to All the Churches of Jesus Christ Throughout the World from the General Assembly of the National Presbyterian Church, end of quote. It's about a, two pages, three pages, and I made 30 copies. They're back on the credenza, but this is it. And I would encourage you to read that. I think you will find it instructive and enlightening in many ways. And so there in that letter, the newborn confederation of Presbyterian churches gave several reasons for their splitting from the PCUS, their division. But partway through that letter, the authors mentioned one of the prayers for their actions, and it was a very self-aware and very perceptive, very perceptive in its observation. Here's how it goes. Quote, Our prayer is that God may use this movement, division, splitting from the PCUSA, that God may use this movement to promote the spiritual awakening, not only of the new church, the PCA, that God may use this division to arouse us, not only for the new church, but also... um, uh, uh, that in that from which we have separated. If in the providence of God such were to occur, we would gladly acknowledge that the grounds for separation and division would have to be reassessed. End of quotation. It was that very self-aware recognition, and there's hints of it throughout the letter, but that very self-aware recognition that both associations, the new National Presbyterian Church becoming PCA and the PCUS, both associations need Jesus. That both, the hope was that their split from the PCUS would bring about a spiritual awakening for both associations, the PCA and the PCUS. And if that spiritual awakening came, there would be a need to reassess the separation and division if God were to bring that forth. I want you to hold that in the back of your head. We'll come around to it partway through the sermon. But now we're moving through 1 Peter 4, 12 through 19, and we will be thinking about fiery trial, fiery trial, focused track, fixed time, firm trust. There's the four points, and you can see all of those in the back of your worship guide. Fiery trial, verses 12 through 14. Have you noticed that Peter just cannot let it go? Right? Just like a little puppy chomping on his new chew toy, he just keeps nibbling and gnawing at sufferings. 
and Christian sufferings and especially the inevitability of Christian suffering. And so after describing how we are to be as it all ends, that was last week's sermon, verses 7 through 11, he now comes here, beginning at verse 12, to an end-of-the-world kind of situation, a fiery trial of some kind. And I want you to listen to how he pushes back on our knee-jerk reaction to such a thing. You know what a knee-jerk reaction is, right? Some of you still go to a real doctor, don't you? You know, and you sit there and you cross your leg the first time and he comes with his hammer, or she comes with her hammer and hits you there and you're jerk. It's a knee-jerk reaction, right? Our knee-jerk reaction when we hear about fiery trials coming upon us, um, notice how he pushes back on that knee-jerk reaction. Listen to verse 12. Beloved Do not, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Don't be surprised! Right? No surprise, Peter would say this, because what has he been doing through almost this whole letter? Bringing up that there will be seasons and occasions when we will suffer and so of all the people. We should not be surprised because we have been apprised. And Peter will keep circling on this subject to the very end of this letter. Don't be surprised. Notice he goes on to say, for when it comes upon you. He doesn't say if, he says when it will comes upon you. Additionally, notice he says that it's a test of the genuineness of our faith. This fiery trial. It's exactly what he had said at the very beginning of this letter in chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. When he said these words in chapter 1, 6 and 7. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by fire may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. It tests, and it's meant to test, the genuineness of our faith, this fiery trial, whenever it comes. Therefore, instead of being shocked and surprised, as though something strange were happening to you, Peter goes on to say, verse 13, But rejoice! Insofar as... Interesting statement. Insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad with his, when his glory is revealed. Now, Peter, in this part, beginning here and all the way to the end, really, in a sense, is heavily reminding us of much that he has already written. He had talked earlier, back at the beginning of chapter 4, and verses 1 and 2, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, etc., so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Notice he's back to that again. He's reminding us of that. But as I mentioned back when we looked at verse 1 and 2, he is here, it's clear, he is coming back to our union, our solidarity with Christ. Insofar as you share in the sufferings of Christ, our union and our solidarity with Christ. Which means then, in those occasions and seasons when we are maligned and we are mistreated, 
our Lord Jesus is right there in it with us. He's not made us outcast and castaways. And further, just as our Lord Jesus was mistreated, they mistreated Jesus, but then our Father elevated and honored him in the resurrection, then our union with Christ will take us right through the sufferings into the suffusion, from the sufferings to the suffusion of the joy and glory, his joy and glory at our resurrection, where we will be, to quote the Shorter Catechism, where we will be openly acknowledged and acquitted in the day of judgment and made perfectly blessed in the full enjoying of God to all eternity. Thus, my friends, to be sober-minded and steady for the sake of our prayers, Peter gives us a different perspective on the fiery trials. And the different perspective comes out in verse 14. I hope you're following in your Bibles here. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Now, I need to say something about verse 14 because it often gets misused. So when I was in a particular sect, and you, some of you know what that was, we were notorious for our pugnaciousness in arguments. We were pretty often up front and attacking people. And so then they would push back and they would shout back at us and we would say, oh, look, look, we're being insulted. That's proof we're right. That's how verse 14 gets misused, not only by the group that I was in, but many of our Mormon friends and Jehovah's Witness friends. But Peter's not saying, here's proof. He's saying, here's encouragement. Look at it again. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Our union with Christ, our solidarity with our Lord Jesus, draws us into communion with the Father and the Spirit. Our union with the Son draws us into communion with the Father and the Spirit. We really are blessed no matter what they say. That's Peter's point. We are blessed in this communion with the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, even as the majority culture insults us, even as the prevailing society derides us and treats us as third-class citizens, even as the reigning mindset disenfranchises us, dishonors us, disowns us, and says we're not worth diddly most of the time. Peter is saying, no, you are in union through Christ and communion with the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. You really are blessed. He wrote those words to encourage us as we face our fiery trial. It's not about proof, it's about encouragement. And so my friends, remember that God has caused us by his great mercy to be born again through the resurrection of Jesus Christ and to a living hope and a lively inheritance. And this is the lively inheritance most of all, is that we have the whole God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Therefore, my friends, in the fiery trial, we have a focused track. This is verses 15 and 16. We have a focused track. The focus track is verse 15, not this, verse 15, but this, verse 16. 
Whatever else happens, whatever we may be going through is a fiery trial, we are not to become a retaliator, a reviler, or a rabble-rouser. Often, and this happens in all kinds of moments, but often the oppressed become the oppressors, the aggressed become the aggressors, the violated become the violators. And notice what Peter is saying here. Don't, verse 15, don't let your grief and tears, don't let your, the wrongs done to you, don't let the violence that has gotten the best of you, don't let these things convince you that you can retaliate in kind. I mean, that's why verse 15 is in the context of suffering. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or as a meddler. I can tell you from experience my own and from also dealing with other people when we are wronged. The temptation is for us to retaliate and respond in kind. To strike out against those who have stricken us down. And then the voices in our head. And yes, we do have voices in our head. Don't tell me I'm the only one, all right? But those voices in our head says, yeah, you've earned it. You deserve it. You know, they cheated. They lied. They slandered. They did this. So you, now the gloves are off. You go at them the same way. You have a right. That's the voices in our head. And Peter says, no. You don't respond that way. Instead, we're to stay on the focus track. Verse 16, yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. I find it interesting that Peter puts in there, let him not be ashamed. Peter wrote in a time when most of the world was a shame-honor culture. Now, we don't live with that as much in America, but most of our Asian friends live with that shame honor, and Middle Eastern friends live with that shame honor. Many South Americans live with that shame honor. And all you got to do is just go to rural USA, and most of the small towns have that shame honor culture. I've seen it happen. Here's what I mean. Honor is everything. This is why, by the way, there are honor killings in some cultures because someone in the family has shamed the whole family. Honor is everything. I saw a woman one time, and men can do this too. I saw a woman one time keep control of a whole church and many in town because what she would do to get her way is she would publicly shame someone in public, in earshot of everybody else. She would verbally undress them. And they would cower because this is horrifying in a small town environment where everybody knows you. They know what you ate for supper last night and breakfast this morning, right? It was horrifying. She always got her way because she used shame against them. It happens. And I find it interesting then that Peter says, yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. Because if you suffer as a Christian in the majority culture of the time especially, that meant that you were a shameful person. And thus you brought disgrace to your name and disgrace to your family's heritage and so forth. And yet what does Peter say? If you suffer, if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. You don't play that shame honor game. Instead, let him glorify God in that name. And so being those whom Jesus has put on God's good side... 
That's justification. Being those whom Jesus has put on God's good side and thus have been placed on the right side of history. We're not to give in to the temptation to become like the prevailing society when it reviles and rails against us. When it calls us evildoers while we've been doing good. Instead, we can and we are to unashamedly stay on our focused track, followers of Jesus. But now, Peter turns to take a deeper, to look deeper into the fiery trial and how it is a fixed time. And this is verses 17 through 18. To keep us, maybe, from strutting around in triumphalistic fist pumping. Oh, we're on the right side of history. We're on God's good side. We're, we're okay. You rest, you people. Ah! Right? Instead of allowing us to gawk around in triumphalistic fist pumping, Peter slides into a humbling perspective of the fiery trial. It's a humbling perspective. It is also, the fiery trial is also, Peter says, an act of God's judgment. The fiery trial is an act of God's judgment. It is an act of God's judgment upon his household and upon those who are opposed to his household, the prevailing society. Well, we'll just look at verse 17. Talking about the fiery trial, the suffering, he says, for it is time for judgment. It is time, fixed time. It is time for judgment to begin where? At the household of God, not the White House, our house. It is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? I mean, we hear that and we think, well, he's talking about that other denomination. Right? That's the temptation. But no, he says, it's time for judgment to begin upon the household of God. That's all of us. Now, we're good Presbyterians, and we're not shocked in some ways by this. We understand original sin and all the actual transgressions which proceed from it, called total depravity. We understand it. We practice it sometimes. Don't tell anybody. But And so it's no surprise that God's judgment would begin on his house first, and it would start here. Because we know that until Jesus returns... That the presence of sin is still alive in us. We know that at his cross and resurrection, he broke the power of sin. Hallelujah. He took away the penalty of sin. Glory to God. He humbled the pride of sin. Thank you, Lord. But the presence of sin still remains. And so no surprise, no wonder that judgment begins at the household of God. Until Jesus returns to wipe it out utterly, the household of God will always be a band of misfits and outcasts, to quote something from last week. A band of misfits and outcasts who always need Jesus together and always need correcting by Jesus together. But further, notice that Peter's reminding us that, yes, We will one day be vindicated at the day of judgment. 
But the fact that judgment begins with the household of God reminds us so that we can never forget it. That vindication will come at the final day. It will be declared publicly for all to hear. But we will know that vindication was never deserved by us. It's called justification, right? That vindication was never deserved. And judgment beginning at the household of God reminds us. It was never and never will be deserved. It will only and always be by the grace, by grace alone in Christ alone. I tell Pastor West this all the time. He gets tired of hearing it. I know he does. Feel sorry for him, please. I tell him all the time, West, there's no denomination, there's no congregation that has it all together. And with all of the backbiting and backstabbing and slandering and crooked politicking you see across the church's landscape and so forth, I then tell him, Wes, it'll be a miracle if any of us are saved. It'll be grace alone. Even more, notice that Peter here is pointing out that the day of judgment has already, really already begun in a sense. And so he quotes in verse 18, he's quoting from the Greek Septuagint translation of Proverbs 11.31, which we read before our confession of sin a minute ago. If the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Now, did you hear, by any chance, did you just happen to hear the grace alone sentiment in that verse, verse 18? Scarcely saved. Grace alone. Ain't none of our doing that's going to get us in. But then we're right back to another thought. What will become of the ungodly and the sinner? What will become of those who do not obey the gospel of God? Peter doesn't tell you, but he implies it. But it's all over the rest of the scriptures. I did a whole series on hell and heaven. Anybody remember that? Thank you. I see those hands. But think about John 3, verse 35 and 36. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hands. He who believes in the Son has everlasting life, but he who does not obey the Son shall not see life. But the wrath of God abides on him. I mean, do we want that for them? By no means. And so this reminder takes us back to chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. And you heard this a couple times already. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason, for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. And why do you want to give an answer? Not only because Jesus tells us to through Peter, but because why? Because you don't want them to enter into the condemnation and judgment of God that you and I and they all deserve. What do you want? You want them to come with you to church and to fall on their knees before Jesus in faith, hope, and love with you. Right? Can you say yes? Thank you. That's right. So that reminds us of that. But I want us to take this judgment that begins at the household of God a bit further. 
If judgment begins at the household of God, if, it can, if judgment on God's household can begin now, what is one way that we will see it? There are several ways we would see it. But I would like you to think back to our reading from Zechariah chapter 8. What was God's specific act of judgment? There were a couple of things, but then there was one that he shocks you with at the end. God's judgment upon his household was to divide his household. That's what he says. For I set every man against his neighbor. He was talking about inside the church. And sure enough, that's exactly what he did. In fact... A huge portion of the Old Testament scriptures is all about God having separated Judah from Israel. Do you remember the story? Second Kings, First Kings, Second Kings, First Chronicles, Second Chronicles. Many of the prophets, like six hundred years, God pulled them apart as an act of judgment. And if you know the story, they were all in it up to their eyeballs in the sin. And so God began judgment upon the household of God by ripping his church apart. I've set every man against his neighbor. There was no room then in the split. There was no room of taunting that other denomination that, well, we're more righteous than you are. That's where we usually go, but there was just no room for it. No room for the snobbish gloating over the other group. It was God's judgment on his household. Because God holds his household to a higher standard. And you moms and dads know about that stuff. Because you hold your own kids and your own household to a higher standard than the neighbor's. And so, my friends, as you and I, as we look out over the cluttered, littered, ramshackle, and ransacked ecclesiastical landscape, Instead of us strutting around in any kind of self-righteous reveling and sanctimoniously smug celebrations of our greater godliness than those people, what we should be doing is falling down on our faces, crying out for mercy and forgiveness and for enlightenment to see our sin that brought this about and brought God's judgment upon his house To begin there, that, my friends, is something of what is in our denominational denominational forefathers were saying in that letter. Maybe God will bring spiritual awakening to us because obviously we're not as awakened as we would like to be and to the PCUS. I find it interesting that on a more national level, Robert E. Lee, as the Civil War began to unfold and he was left the Union Army and became the Confederate general, had this sense about the nation that had shattered right before him in 1861. He wrote a young lady these words, Whatever may be the result of the contest, I foresee that the country will have to pass through a terrible ordeal, a necessary expiation of our national sins. He seemed to carry that sentiment for quite a few years into the wars. He would write Mary, his wife, and Custis, his son, and he would say those things again. He seemed to recognize that the division was because God was bringing judgment upon the nation. Now, Randy Faulkner's not here, so I get to throw him under the bus. 
But last month we were praying for Ukraine and Russia and Randy made this observation. He said an old minister of his told him back when he first became a minister that when a people are not at peace with God, they will not be at peace with anyone. If we're not at peace with God, we're not at peace with man. It's that same idea. So judgment must begin at the household of God. But beloved, there's hope. There's hopeful news. Back in Zechariah chapter 8, God promises, Now though, I will bring a sowing of peace. And our Lord Jesus prayed in John 17. Anybody read John 17? He prays in John 17 that we, his household, his people, will be sanctified in the truth and his word is truth. And we will become one. We will become united around him in truth so that all the world will come to know that the Father sent Jesus and the Father loves us. That's the only time really in the end the world will know is as we draw together. And thank God the father will not say no to his son. It's going to happen. And so we live with that hopeful hopeful anticipation and lean in that direction, longing for it, knowing that judgment begins at the household of God. And so we're grieved by what we see in the ecclesiastical landscape. And we don't go around gloating with the thumbs stuck under our suspenders. Look at how righteous I am and doctrinally pure I am because the rest of those yahoos are in a heap of trouble. But for the grace of God, there go I. It's a fixed time of God's judgment, beginning in his household. And it turns into a firm trust. And that's that last verse, verse 19. Verse 19 is almost a summary statement of all that Peter has written from chapter 313 through chapter 418. And so he says, therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Remembering that we are united to Christ, it's no surprise that Peter uses certain language here that he actually used of Jesus back in chapter 2, verse 23. When he was reviled, he did not revile and return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself To him who judges justly and being united to Jesus, then as we walk through and share in Christ's sufferings, we also entrust our souls to a faithful creator. But also notice it's while we're still about doing good. It's in suffering. We don't want to do good, actually, but notice it's while we are doing good. As I pointed out two weeks ago, we aren't out there looking for trouble. We're not out there making ourselves martyrdom magnets. We're not bringing our hammers and nails and our plywood or our, I mean, our two by fours out there to build crosses and say unto the world, here, I made you a cross, crucify me on it. We don't go running around with our cans of paint, painting targets around our heads and saying, come on, baby, shoot me. In Jesus' name, of course. But with firm trust in our faithful creator, while doing good, we entrust ourselves to him and we plot on. First then, my friends, no surprises. Let us not be surprised because we have been apprised. Secondly, let us stay on the focused 
track with our Lord Jesus and not give in to the temptation to burn the house down over our heads to get ourselves vindicated. And lastly, we have a faithful creator that you can entrust yourself to. How do you know? Go back to chapter 1, verse 3. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his abundant mercy, has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that won't ever fall apart or rot or fall away. You have a faithful creator you can entrust yourself to even as you walk through a fiery trial with Jesus. Let's pray. Well, Lord, it is hard for us to swallow that bitter pill that sometimes when your judgment breaks out upon the house of God first, at first that, that actually would happen that way, that you would break out in judgment upon your household, but secondly, that it might break out in divisions and schisms. Forgive us for the times we've gloated in self-righteousness. Forgive us, Lord. Bring us as our forebears in our denomination prayed. Bring us spiritual awakening. Lift our hearts. And Lord, we pray that as we walk through fiery trials unsurprised, we would walk through bearing the name of Jesus as we do good. Give us your strength. And hold us up in Jesus' name. Amen.